Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, turn with me now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We as a church have been working our way through this. We took a break for Advent and did a series, as as you know, on uh, the, the songs of the servant in Isaiah. And then we had a couple of of Christmas sermons, and now we're back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We're going to look this morning at verses 15 through 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy and inspired and authoritative word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Most gracious Father, I ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word and that you would now by your spirit strengthen me to proclaim your word clearly that we all together may be strengthened by the hope of the gospel and the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to this passage, there's a whole bunch of imperatives that we're looking at here. And so I want to, as, as we often do, I want to kind of coach us on how it is that we're to hear these, these imperatives. Because there's kind of three ways that you can hear the imperatives of the Bible as a Christian. And two of these ways are incorrect. The first way is you can hear the imperatives of the Bible is like, oh, this is what I do for God to be satisfied with me. And that's legalism. That's trying to perform in order to satisfy God's wrath when Christ himself is the one who satisfies God's wrath. A second way that is incorrect to hear the imperatives is, well, I've got the Spirit and he will be my guide and I'll do this if I feel so compelled. And that's antinomianism or or easy believism. Thinking that I don't have to do what the Bible says. God loves me anyway. It's just me and my personal Jesus. The problem with both of these ways of hearing the imperatives of Scripture is that they're both, they're both serving your flesh. On the one hand, you serve your flesh thinking that you can actually do something. That you can actually satisfy God's wrath. That you can perform well enough. On the other hand, you serve your flesh because you refuse to see it put to death. The third way to hear these imperatives allows them to convict us as the word of God. But if we're in Christ, it doesn't condemn us. Rather, we hear it as instruction for how we are to live as Christians in the kingdom of God as faithful citizens who've been brought in to the kingdom of Christ. In other words, this is how we live as Christians, not how we live to be a Christian. Again, as I often say, we've got to keep the indicative statements, who we are in Christ, and the imperative statements in the right order. 
We can't get them backwards, though we are often tempted to switch them. Because so much in our life is based on our performance, it's based on our merit. We want our religion to be also. It seems like it would be simpler, but it's not. And so it's important that we start at the end of these verses in verse 20, where we see that we're to submit to our Lord Jesus Christ, or to give thanks, sorry, to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's important that we stop there because that lets us know Paul is talking to people who already have professed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's talking to Christians, people who already stand in the grace people who are already huddled in the merciful fort of our Savior Jesus Christ. And he's telling us how we should live. And this passage is arranged arranged around five different imperative statements that are kind of grouped into three groups. The first is, look carefully then how you walk. As I told the kids, this walking metaphor is used throughout Scripture to to describe the way of life. And just like we remember when we were kids, our parents telling us, be careful, don't fall, we don't want you to get hurt, whatever. So Paul tells us here, pay attention. Pay attention to how you walk. And then he gives some clarity to it. Not as unwise, but as wise. Because the days, uh, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. We just read Proverbs chapter 9, and we, we heard these two announcements. One from Lady Wisdom, who many take to be a personification of Christ, announcing, come, you who are simple, come to me. And there's a banquet that, that she has prepared for us. It's just this incredible picture of grace. That wisdom calls us to herself and to the banquet that she has prepared for us that we might find sustenance, that we might learn, that we might be strengthened. But what's interesting about Proverbs chapter 9 is those last few verses, we see folly announces the same thing. She calls to us as well. You who are simple, come in this way. And that's the reality of the life that we live as Christians. In this time, between the times, between the first and second coming of Christ, when the kingdom has been inaugurated but not yet consummated, when we still, as Paul tells us, battle with our flesh, when this fallen world is still our physical home, this is the reality of our life every day, isn't it? We hear wisdom call to us. Come in here. Come to the feast that I have prepared for you. Come and revel in the grace and the mercy of wisdom. And at the very same time, we hear folly call. Come in here. Come in here. I haven't prepared anything for you. You'll have to steal your bread, but it'll be good. You'll have to eat it in secret so that nobody catches you, but it'll be satisfying. The reality is we're we're being beckoned to a feast of life and a feast of death. And the problem with folly, as we heard in Proverbs 9, is she uses the same words to call us as wisdom. And so Paul says, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. 
The, the phrase making the best use of the time is the, the word there is, is the word that's used for redemption, redeeming the time. As we see in Galatians 3.13, that, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The, the idea is, is to rescue the time from loss or misapplication. What, what Paul is, is calling us to is, is make sure that you are following the voice of wisdom. Make sure that it's her voice you're answering. Because they will sound very similar because the days are evil. We live in a time that though Christ has triumphed, though he rose in victory over sin and death, though he has shamed the devil, oh, that demon is still active. And he knows exactly how to entice our flesh. And he knows exactly how to do it in such a way even that Christians will stand and justify our folly with the words of God twisted out of their context. See, when we have this kind of over-realized eschatology that, 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 that everything has been vanquished, we get lazy. And we miss the reality of the life that we're living in. But Paul tells us, be careful. Pay attention. Watch where you step. Redeem this time that we live in. That set of imperatives and, and its supporting clauses is kind of the, the main point of this section. And then Paul gives us two other sets that he sets in contrast, to uh, four other imperatives that, that two each are set in contrast with each other to continue filling up this call to pay attention to how we live as Christians. First, he says, therefore, so no, notice, because of what I've just said, because I'm, I'm calling you to pay attention to how you walk because the days are evil. I'm calling you to redeem the time. I'm, I'm calling you to live wisely. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. So there's the first contrast. Don't be foolish, but understand God's will. That's the reality. It really is that strong of a dichotomy. There, there is folly. There's pursuing our flesh. There's pursuing what we want. There's, there is hearing this, what, what the Bible says, this adulterous woman who knows nothing, this seductress calling to us, come this way, you who are simple, and I will give you understanding. And then there's carefully discerning and understanding what God's will for us is. Hearing Lady Wisdom call to us and call us into the gracious bounty of our Savior. And that's the contrast. If we're not walking according to God's will, then we are by definition walking in foolishness. It doesn't matter how successful our life may look by this world's standards. We may have everything put together. We, we may have money in our bank account and investments galore and, and houses paid for and cars that work and children that are well-behaved and well-dressed and valedictorians and all kinds of things. We may have it all. But if we're not walking according to the will of God, we're living as fools. 
This is important for us to remember because well, we have this tendency to think of a fool not as the category of not understanding God's will, but as the category of like, oh, addicts, they're fools, or, or, or adulterers. They're, you know, people that are doing really stupid stuff that's really apparent for everyone to see they're fools. And certainly, that's true. But so is anything that looks good and admirable by this world and isn't according to the will of God. And we forget that. We forget that reality. How is it then that we're to understand, if we're to actively seek to understand God's will, how is it that we do this? Well, Paul tells us in in a similar passage in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Notice that over and over and over, God's mercy, his grace, is what drives all of this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's the first step. Give yourself holy to Lady Wisdom. Give yourself holy to God as he calls to you. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's the second step. We need to be taught, again, how to think in terms of God's will, in terms of his word, in in terms of his plans and, and his thoughts and his desires and his righteousness and his holiness and his truth. That's not the default setting of our mind by any stretch of the imagination. The default setting of our mind is serving our flesh. The default setting of our mind is is what's easy. The default setting of our mind is, is following our heart, no matter how wicked it looks. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And here's the result, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Understanding the will of God isn't just going into your prayer closet and, and, and using that, uh, that, that old metaphor of push, pray until something happens. Certainly there are times when we're, when we're at a loss and we don't know what to do other than call out to God that his spirit might lead us. Certainly there are times for that. But it seems when we look at it biblically, the the normal way of understanding God's will, the normal way of discerning what it is that we should do is seeking his wisdom in his word, letting our minds, letting the categories of thought with which we work be transformed by his word. Seeking the wisdom of many Christian counselors. That's each other. People that have gone before us in the Christian life that that, that may have some insight into the situation we're in, going to them and saying, hey, what did you learn as you sought to walk by faith through this difficulty? What did God teach you then that maybe I can learn now and not learn it the hard way? Don't be a fool, but seek to understand what the will of God is. It is something that we have to seek. It is something we strive for, and we do it by going to his word and going to him in prayer, by having our our, our minds transformed and having our ears tuned 
to the voice of wisdom that when we hear it, we might recognize it. People that have perfect pitch fascinate me because they can hear a note and know what note it is or, or they can hear a key on the piano struck and know if, if it's off and, and which way it's off. We need to have that trained in us with God's wisdom. So that when we hear things announced, we can say, uh, you know what, that's close, but not quite. Or we can hear it and say, yes, that is the way in which we need to walk. And we're so trained by coming and sitting under his word. The third set of imperatives on which Paul spends a little bit more time begin in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, or, or better, be filled by the Spirit. Just as he contrasted previously foolishness and knowing God's will, here he contrasts drunkenness and being filled by the Spirit. And, and, and there's kind of a, a funny contrast that he sets up here as we, as we look at the participles that he provides to explain what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit. We, we've Maybe some of us have been there ourselves or, or seen people there where, where, where they're not filled with the Spirit. They're filled with spirits, plural, and they've had a few too many. And, and, and what happens? Oftentimes, they break out in song, and here they go, singing you know, sea shanties or whatever it may be. And they've got their arms around each other, and it's, I love you, man. And it's just gratitude everywhere you look. And then they submit to one another perfectly, but to do stupid stuff and get themselves in trouble. Notice that being filled by the Spirit follows a similar trajectory, but focused on God. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing to one another. Take, take each other, put your arms around each other's shoulders and sing boldly of the things of God to one another and rejoice together. In the good news of Christ. This is the part I warned you about earlier. This is why we sing in church. We are singing. We are, we are a choir who, who all together lifts its voice up to God on high. In praise and adoration and worship of him. But even as we do that. We're the audience hearing each other. Sing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And as much as we know each other and know what's going on in each other's lives in a small church like this, I can promise you there is someone this morning here that needed to hear those words proclaimed and you got to give that to them. You got to, to lift your voice to them and say, your God is a mighty fortress. You can hide in him. He will not fail you. He will keep you. You got to call each other to come and sing together because our God is worthy of worship. Addressing one another 
in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You need to sing when we sing. Because I need to hear from you and whoever's sitting next to you or across from you needs to hear from you what those songs are saying that in God's providence we're singing that morning. You are ministering to your brothers and sisters in Christ when you lift up your voice to God. But then Paul tells us the manner in which we do this. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, we know that God can use the word of God sung and announced, even as Paul tells us in Philippians, from those who preach to make his chains worse. Paul kind of says, this is a, a definite paraphrase, jokes on you, the gospel is still effective. And here's the deal. You can stand here like a stick in the mud, a mighty fortress, and sing it just like that. And guess what? Jokes on you, we're ministered to still. But Paul says that these words are to come from our heart. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I get it. We're Presbyterians. We don't move a lot. Nary is there an amen or a hand raised. And certainly we don't clap. And if you dance, the session meeting's tonight at 730. But some life can come into our worship. Some some real emotion can come out. Our hearts can be filled with the joy and the wonder and the glory of what we sing. And Paul's saying, That's what it is to be filled by the Spirit. When you're filled with wine and and you're singing with your friends, you believe every foolish word that you sing with everything that you have. So should it be when we're filled by the Spirit. That every wise, truthful, glorious gospel word that we sing should stir in us the joy of the Lord that is the fruit of the Spirit. So lift your voices in this way. That God might be worshipped, that God might be glorified, and that your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ might be strengthened. Even as they, like you, with the Spirit's help, seek to cling to the gospel, perhaps with all they have left. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What else does it it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very appropriate time to talk about Thanksgiving. We're about a month out from Christmas, not quite. And and kids, all those presents that that we got to open, that we were so excited about, that we're going to change our year, and it was was everything I wanted. It's what I've wanted forever. And 
and, and, and my guess is, because I was a kid like you, I did the same thing. Half of it is buried in your closet and you have no idea where it is anymore. The gratitude is gone. Parents were the same way. The socks were super awesome until they got washed. And now they're crunchy again. And we're not happy anymore. But Paul says in everything, in everything, giving thanks to God. Is this how we process our lives? That everything that we have is a gift from God. That the food that we eat the clothes we wear, the houses we live in, the cars we drive, the the bikes we ride, the, the jobs we have, the family we have, the church we attend, everything, everything is an opportunity to give thanks to God in Christ Jesus because he is the sovereign. He is the one who has provided for us. Even our suffering. James tells us to be grateful, to count it joy when we face trials of various kinds. Even our suffering, the right response. It's not that we don't mourn. It's not that we, we, we take some pie-in-the-sky view and, and, and act like we're, we're above it all. No, 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 no. We mourn, we suffer, we admit that it hurts, but we also recognize, as the Bible tells us, that these trials of various kinds that we face are designed by God to shape us into who he is shaping us into. And so even our suffering, we can thank God for. Because he's using it for his glory and our good. We don't like that part of it. But that's the reality of having a God who is in control of all things. Now, I want to be clear about what I'm saying. I'm not saying rejoice that you're suffering. James says count it joy. But but I'm not saying like, oh, act like, yeah, no, it's no big deal. God's doing something. It's going to be awesome. And be unaffected by it. No. Not at all. It's precisely in how our suffering affects us that God shapes us and teaches us to trust him more and more and deeper and deeper. So Paul says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that God is bringing to us, good or bad, kind providence or difficult providence, joy or pain, whatever it is that he's bringing to us, if we're to give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, He's bringing it to us as his adopted children because he's a loving father. And that's how we're to receive it. 
even as we expect parents, our kids, to receive our discipline and the suffering that that we bring when, when they need to be shaped. We expect them to receive that from us as from one who loves them. If everything we receive, we give thanks for in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, then everything we receive, we receive as children of God, children of the Father who loves us. There's one more participle that's given to to fill up what it is to be filled by the Spirit. And this one kind of bridges between uh, verses 15 through 20 and then what comes after in this family table that we're going to pick up and, and spend some time on the next few weeks. And it's this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't like this idea, submitting to one another, submitting to anything. We're, we're, it's just uncomfortable. We don't like it. We don't want to do it. But this is the life that when the Spirit fills us, He enables us to live. F.F. Bruce, the, the, the great New Testament scholar, he said this about this passage. Christians should not be self assertive, each insisting on getting his or her own way. Out of reverence for their Lord, who set such a precedent, His followers should place themselves at one another's disposal living so that their forbearance is a matter of public knowledge, even when others are encouraged on on their account to take advantage of them. That's what it means to submit to one another. To so thoroughly give ourselves to each other. Yes, some may try to take advantage. How can we do that? Only in the knowledge that we are secure in Christ Jesus. Only with the knowledge that everything that we receive, we receive as from our Father, as His children, adopted, redeemed by the blood of Christ. Only when we find our hope and security and identity entirely in Jesus, can we do this? Can we live in submission to one another? Only then. And if we try, apart from that, inevitably, at some point, we'll be asked for something that our flesh simply won't give and will stop submitting. But the Christian life is one of giving yourself up because God the Father gave up his son for you. The freedom of the Christian life is you don't have to secure yourself. You don't have to redeem yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to justify yourself. You get to rest in Christ and give yourself as an offering to God and to be used at the disposal of your brothers and sisters in Christ that the body of Christ might be built up in love. Now this is the basis for everything Paul says in the next several verses 
about the family. And so we'll start here again next week and remind us of this. But it's all only possible when we're filled by the Spirit. So that's the Christian life as Paul lays it out. Paying attention to how we walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Not being fools, but understanding God's will. Not being drunk with wine, but filled by the Spirit. Because we're the children of God. Might we so walk with such care. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for all that it calls us to. And it calls us to a lot. Indeed, it calls us to the very end of ourselves, to the, to the putting to death by the Spirit, our own works of the body. To the rejection of our flesh. To the deafness of the seductress of folly. And to hear the words of wisdom that call us in to the banquet set for us in the fort of God's mercy. Would you, by your spirit, teach us to walk with such care in this life? Because you have redeemed us by your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.